Well, uh, good morning, church. It's good again to be together in God's house and fellowshipping around God's word this morning as we think upon the days growing near or getting nearer to the time where we recall and remember the birth of our Savior. If you have your Bibles, please turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Our text today, the preaching of God's word, will be from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25. I'll read God's word. And as I read God's word, may we keep in mind this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child she has been con- in her, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your faithfulness to keep your word from ages past from eternity past. We're thankful, Lord, that here in this text, at a certain point of time or in time that you had appointed, everything came to fruition of your promises being fulfilled and the Messiah coming into this world. I do pray, Lord, that you help us to understand your word You help us to see it afresh, that it may not be so familiar that our hearts are close to it. I do pray, Lord, that even as we're confronted with this question of who is Jesus, whether we have been believers for a long time or short time or maybe we don't know Jesus, I I do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit just opens our hearts your word. And in that, Lord, I do pray as well that where we are disobedient, 
or unruly, you may rebuke us. Where we are faint-hearted, you may encourage us, and where we are weak, you may help us. I ask and pray this through your son's name. Amen. As I prayed this morning, we come to a very familiar text that has been read for ages since God inspired it. We have read it in our homes for Advent and heard it preached many times over several years. Songs have been composed of it and recited in many plays, perhaps by some of our children and Sunday school children. But I hope that the familiarity of this text will not shut our hearts and our minds to the truths of the central person who is being talked about here, who is Jesus Christ. It is easy to be distracted by other characters whom we're thankful for in this text, but let us not miss the central character in this text, who is Christ himself. This morning, I'd like for us to be confronted anew, perhaps for some of you the first time, as to the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And as we answer this very important question, I pray that it may drive us closer to our Savior and ponder anew the implications this has on our lives as we are here on earth. Now, the book of Matthew was uh, primarily written to the Jewish people by Matthew, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples while he was here on earth. And Matthew's primary goal is to show Jesus as king, the Messiah promised by God in the Old Testament. The book really becomes an apology, as it were, or a defense against many of the attacks that were happening during the time of Matthew to the reality of who is Jesus. These attacks came from many who slandered Jesus after his death and considered him to be the illegitimate child of Mary. The Jewish leaders at the time also would have contended with the idea of the deity of Christ or the fact that Jesus Christ is God. On one occasion in John chapter 5, verse 18, we read that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he made himself equal with God. They wouldn't have had a challenge with many of the teachings of Jesus Christ, but if there's one aspect they really, really struggled with was this aspect that Jesus Christ is God. But Matthew, in writing this book, has to protect the truths of the claim that Jesus is God, and he was born of a virgin. He did indeed live a perfect life. He died for the sins of sinners. He rose from the grave. Without any one of these truths, the gospel would be incomplete. Matthew starts by using or writing the first 17 verses in the book to show Jesus' genealogy that you're very familiar with, or his lineage. He is a descendant of David and has a right uh, to the royal throne of David, but here he is focusing more on Jesus' human genealogy from verse 1 to 17. He is the one who has the right to the Davidic throne, something that the Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah, particularly in Uh, the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. So verses 1 to 7 focus on the humanity of Christ and his right to the throne of David. 
Now, when we come to our text today, verse 18 to 25, we'll then switch and start focusing on Jesus' divine lineage. His divine lineage. So as we get into our text today in answering who Jesus is, we have to understand the switch that will be there in these two um, passages. And in answering that question of who is Jesus, who is Jesus, as Matthew lays it out, the first thing he wants people to understand in this account of, of an angel coming to Joseph and, 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 and sharing with him about what God has been doing through Mary, the first thing he will make very clear is this aspect that Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus is God in human flesh. Look at verses 18 to 20. Now the birth of Jesus came as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, and how it came about. The word birth that he starts by talking about there in verse 18 comes from the same Greek word used in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 of genealogy. When you read Matthew 1 verse 1 saying the record of the genealogy of Jesus, that same word is the same root word that is used in verse 18 for birth of Jesus Christ. So then what follows is really a parallel account to Jesus' birth Beginning with his human lineage, what he has shown in verse 1 to 17, his royal lineage, and then he catches that same root word and starts off in talking about Jesus' divine, um, Jesus's divine birth. Matthew wants us to understand that his, divine, his birth was by no means a normal birth as we know it. We read of this young woman called Mary who was betrothed or pledged to be married to a man called Joseph. And yet, we also read that they had not been intimate uh, together. At this time, we do know that marriages took uh, place at a very young age, so we're talking probably about teenagers here. Women, it was very common for them to get married at the ages of 12 or 13. So these are very young people we are talking about here. Luke 1, verse 27, tells us that Mary was a virgin. A Hebrew marriage was composed of two stages. There was one which was the betrothal, and then the second stage was the marriage ceremony. At the stage of betrothal, a bride price would be paid by the family to the groom. This was almost an arranged, this was almost always an arranged marriage by the parents. Now, this bride price would then cement what would be a contract that would be made between the man and the woman, or the family of the man and the family of the woman. And at that stage of betrothal, they would be considered as legally married even though the ceremony would not have happened or the consummation of that marriage would not have happened. 
So it would be a legal marriage, and for them to separate in any way would have required a divorce. Now, this betrothal period had a point to it. It had the point of uh, being a time of testing each other's fidelity, testing each other's faithfulness and purity, even though the ceremony had not taken place. Now, I don't want you to miss the parallels here that, that are just a stark reality when we think about our relationship with God as a church. Think about it. God could have had Mary conceive when she wasn't betrothed to any man. He could have done that. But we know that our God is very intentional. And he chooses to do that during a time of betrothal. I think one of his reasons in his wisdom was to foreshadow what would follow in our relationship with Christ, the church's relationship with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, we read Paul saying to the church in Corinth, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you. Listen to the use of that word. I betrothed you, church, to one husband. So that Christ, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Do you see the parallels that are there? We as the church, the gathering of those who have believed in the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel, are awaiting a marriage ceremony that is spoken of at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. The ceremony that will be there between Christ, the, between the church, the bride, and Christ. But for now, we are to be, as a pure virgin, continuously putting to death the deeds of the flesh during the sanctification process, awaiting our bridegroom, who is Christ. So there's a foreshadowing that is there in what is happening here with what will happen later when the church is instituted. At any rate, if we come back to our text, the text says Mary is found to be with child during this betrothal period or time of testing. The Bible speaks of unusual births, but these unusual births are usually from barren women who give birth to men such as Isaac, Samuel, but it never records a birth like this, a birth from a virgin. This account is obviously after the account in Luke chapter 1 that records the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 31 before she is with child and tells her uh, that, and behold, you will conceive, there's a future tense there in Luke chapter 1, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. But at this stage, she has already conceived. More significantly, we read at the end of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, that she was with child by the Holy Spirit. This is again repeated in, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, in Joseph's dream that the child had been conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. Now, comprehending the details of the conception by the Holy Spirit is like us trying to understand how God made the world out of nothing. It is something that God gives to us as a truth that has happened, but doesn't explain how. 
Because our minds cannot begin to fathom or understand it. At least on this side of heaven. However, the virgin birth did happen. The virgin birth is of vital importance to the gospel. And I'll strive to show that in a few minutes. We know from the scriptures that everyone is a sinner. Why is the virgin birth so important? And how does this connect to the deity of Christ? We know everyone was born as a sinner at the moment of conception. We know that. So how do you know that? Psalm 51 verse 5. David writes this and affirms and says, Behold, I was born forth iniquity, in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. From the moment of conception, you are already a sinner, is what David is saying in Psalm 51 verse 5. Now, when you have a sinful man and a sinful woman in a sexual union, the result is a sinful child. Born not only in the image of God, but in the likeness of their sinful parents. Here at the birth of Jesus, we see Jesus taking on flesh from the woman, but no sinful human sperm meets the sinful egg of the woman. This is basic biology. Jesus is conceived by God, by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time protected from sin. Without the virgin birth, there would be no deity of Christ. There would, we could not even claim that Jesus Christ is sinless. And remember, at the cross, there needed to be a sinless sacrifice for your sin. And without the sinlessness of Christ, there is no perfect sacrifice for your sin. But God preserves his son, protects his son from that sinfulness that will be there at the moment of conception. God becomes flesh, sinless flesh, so that he could die on the cross for your sin. This birth is also what Matthew will say in verse 22 and the first part of verse 23 in saying, now all this took place in Matthew chapter 1. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. Here Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, which we'll look at in more detail later. But this was foretold all the way from the Old Testament. Even from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, there is a looking forward to this unusual birth that would be there. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 talks about the seed of the woman. You remember that text? The seed of the woman. And that seed will bruise the serpent's what? Head. Right? But think about it. The seed of the woman. When we consider seed normally in the scriptures or naturally, what would be normal would be the seed of the what? The man. But here, from all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it is the seed of the woman. Isn't that amazing? This is the only instance seed does not come from man in the scripture, but from woman. 
Jesus' virgin birth shows that he is God incarnate. So we learn that God is, Jesus is God in flesh, and he's protected from that sinfulness. He is God, and without that being a reality through the virgin birth, there is no gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Secondly, we learn that Jesus is our savior, our savior. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. She will bear a son, and this is, um, this is the, in, in Joseph's dream, as his account continues, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The account continues of Joseph in a dream being told more about the Messiah who is being conceived or has been conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. His name shall be called Jesus. This name uh, finds its Hebrew counterpart in the name Yeshua or Joshua, which has the basic meaning of Yahweh will save or Jehovah will save. Why is he to be given this name? The second part of the verse tells us that it is because he will save his people from their sins. To save means to be delivered. That's what it means, to be delivered from something. In this case, it's to be delivered from the greatest evil there is, which is sin. It is to be delivered from the pollution of sin, the power of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the penalty of sin, which is death, eternal death, and to be delivered ultimately from the presence of sin in our bodies that separate us from God, who is holy. We've seen that everyone is born in sin. Everyone is like you, in fact, if I were to say not just everyone, but you, from the moment you're born, if you're not in Christ, you're like a diseased person who has to be quarantined from a holy God who cannot look upon sin. That's the gravity of your sinfulness. This is something far worse than a virus, far worse than a disease, something that is antithetical to the purity and holiness of God. So much so that there is no relationship. There cannot be a relationship. No fellowship. No communion. We miss the mark of God's purity and holiness. So much so that he cannot look upon sin. And this is what Jesus came to help us in. This is what he came to help you in. This is what John the Baptist meant when he says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one else can take that sin away from you apart from the saving work of Christ himself. The wages of sin is death. The only way that sin could be taken out or removed, or forgiven, was going to be through the penalty of death. But not just any death, 
Not just any death. You couldn't have gone and gone on the cross and say, I'm going to die for my sin. That death had to be sinless. Had to have no spot, no wrinkle. And this is what the Old Testament, all of it just foreshadows and keeps talking about. And God keeps giving us a picture. Bring these animals for sacrifice. But I don't want a sacrifice that is with spot or wrinkle. Or The sacrifice and the substitute has to be perfect. And this is why, again, the virgin birth is so important. Why it had to be God. So he comes to do what you could not do, what you cannot do, so that you can have relationship or be in relationship with him. Mark 10, verse 45, again says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He is the savior or deliverer of the great evil of sin that infects everyone. He came to deliver us so that we may bow down to his lordship. If we, or if you do not have a relationship with Jesus today, this is your greatest need. This is your greatest need more than, more than anything else you think you need in the world. More than whether you think you should be successful, you should be in relationship with anyone. This, this is your greatest, greatest need. That is eternal implications. To be made right with a holy God whose wrath is set upon you for not living for what you were created for, which is his glory. His wrath which is set upon you for not accepting the only way to be made right with him, which is believing in the person of his son and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But if you're a Christian, remember, you have not only been delivered or saved from sin. Oftentimes we stop there as Christians. We've just been delivered from, and we don't think about what we have been delivered for or to. <laughs> we have been delivered to the peace of God, the freedom to obey him and not be slaves to sin, and not to continuously live in sin and take advantage of that grace. We have been delivered to purity and holiness, to the assurance of our salvation. We have been delivered to, to sharing with the world about this marvelous Savior. We have been delivered to a radical change in life. Is that evident today in your life? So, as we continue the text, Jesus is God in flesh. He is Savior, which obviously you cannot divorce from Lordship, right? He is also Lord. He is, he is God in flesh. He is Savior. But finally, in the text, we also learn one more truth about who Jesus is. In verse 22 to verse 23, we learn that he is God with us. He is God with us. Let's read verse 22, 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
From the beginning, God has always desired to dwell with his people. In the Garden of Eden, you have a picture of a perfect relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And God dwelt with his people. You have in Genesis chapter 3 an anthropomorphic picture or a description that is given in terms of ways we would understand it as humans, a picture of God walking in the garden by the cool of the day. But after man sins, God's presence, at least the physical manifestation, becomes further and further throughout the scriptures. And that's because of sin. This is not to say that he now becomes removed in every detail of the world that he has created, but he does not dwell with his people the way that it should have always been because of that separation of sin. You have his physical manifestation at certain points in scripture, such as, you know, you remember the burning bush and thunder and lightning with Moses. And, and, and in a sense, the major way will be through the tabernacle. And later on, the temple as symbols of his divine presence among his people. Now, when you think about the tabernacle, the, the Hebrew word for tabernacle comes from a root, the root word shakan, which means to dwell or abide or rest. And God was giving a picture of that. And from that root shakan has also come the word shakaina, which you're very familiar with, which speaks of the presence or the glory of God. So in the Holy of Holies, you had the shakaina glory. Now, the messianic promise, as we go back to our text here, the messianic promise that Matthew records in verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. He takes that from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and says that that, is, that became the fulfillment of Scripture. Well, how, how, how is this fitting in the text of, of, of God with us? And then he, he talks about uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Well, this Scripture comes at a point in time where King Ahaz is reigning in Judah. He was faced with a war to remove him. And remember, Judah um, or, or was, was where the, the tribe that Christ would come from, and that line of David as well was where you were going to have the Messiah come from. But then he was faced with war to remove him, and this war and this threat came from the king of Assyria and the king of Israel. Israel and Judah had been split at this time. So this was a threat to the royal line of David and ultimately a threat to the coming of the Messiah. And in the face of such a threat, what does Ahaz do? Does he run to God? No. Ahaz doesn't turn to God for help, but instead he turns to the evil king of Assyria. He even goes to the extent of plundering the temple of its gold and silver the temple that had the physical, was the physical symbol of God's presence or dwelling. And then he goes on and then he sends this, all these gifts to the king of Assyria. The prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, God will deliver you from these two kings. But does he believe that? No. 
He rejects that and he refuses to listen. And then that's when this Messiah promise was then prompted or given. It was in essence him telling Ahaz and the people at that time that, listen, God will give you a sign. God will give you a sign that no one will destroy God's people. No one will destroy David's royal line. Not even the king of Assyria or Israel will be able to do that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, so that we can look at this. And we go to Isaiah chapter 7. You start seeing from verse 13 onwards. Isaiah speaking. And then he says... I'll let you read from verse 1 to 12 in your private reading. But then he said, listen, O house of David. This is the context in which this promise is in. Listen, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? That you try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Right? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So even though the people will fall into the hands of the Assyrians and other foreign nations later on, God continues to preserve the line of David, the royal line of David, and God will not forsake his people. And the greatest sign of God's faithfulness would be this child, Emmanuel. Born of a virgin. So, as we come to this text, this is a reminder of the fulfillment of God's promises that he says he will do. He is faithful and he is true, even if his people are not faithful and true. What he has promised to do all the way from Genesis chapter 3 through the seed of the woman, all the way from Genesis chapter 12 when he gives the covenant to Abraham, all the way from Um, 2 Samuel 7, when he gives the covenant to David, all the way from Jeremiah chapter 33, which we heard read today in the New Covenant, and Ezekiel chapter 36 of the New Covenant, God will be faithful to save sinners such as you and me. And this comes now to the culmination and the fulfillment of that sign that he would have given all the way back when Ahaz was even ruling The greatest sign of God being with us and restoring that perfect relationship between God and man is going to be found in a person. And that is Emmanuel himself. Emmanuel himself. This is why John begins in John chapter 1 verse 1 by saying, you don't have to turn there, but in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And why he goes on to say in John chapter 1 verse 14, our memory verse, right? And the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And what? Dwelt. Dwelt among us. And John, as one of Jesus' disciples who saw with his own eyes, he says, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's giving eyewitness testimony here. He dwelt among us, he says. Literally, Emmanuel tabernacled among us. And he still does. 
today. But how? In the hearts of his sheep. Even though not in the, we haven't realized the fullest sense of dwelling, what it means to dwell with Christ. Remember his words in John chapter 14, verse 16 to 17, as he comforted his disciples when he was about to go to die for your sins on the cross. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, what? Helper. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. The world cannot dwell with Christ. But you as believers, you know him, he goes on to say in verse 17, because he abides with you and will be in you. Again, John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, hears from whom? From the Son. He will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus speaking. He will glorify me, for he will take off mine and will disclose it to you. Now, this aspect of God with us continues to get fleshed more and more. When he then leaves the earth, he's about to leave the earth. And remember our, last, our Lord's last words in, recorded in the book of Matthew, Matthew 28? Go therefore, right? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I what? I am with you. I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. There is not going to be a time where a believer, a true Christian, is going to be in doubt of saying, does Jesus even know what's happening in my life? Does God even see all that's happening? He is tabernacling with you. But, I mentioned earlier on, we're not experiencing this in the fullest sense, right? We await the time where we will experience the fullest sense of Emmanuel, God with us. When will that be? When we will dwell with him in heaven. (laughs) When we will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth and we are without sin. It's not possible right now to, be, to, to have that in the fullest sense because we still have this flesh that is with what? With sin. It is here at this time that John will write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 to 2, is saying, Beloved, we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, right? That's talking about even having a sinless body, right? We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Remember that time of betrothal? Purifies himself just as he is pure. And finally, we as believers, when... When, when everything has passed away and those who hate Christ has been, have been judged to eternal punishment, we will enter the eternal state and dwell with our God fully and forever. That's the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. And John again will write in the book of Revelation, verse, in chapter 22, verse 3, 
there will no longer be any curse. Right now, we're experiencing the effect of the curse. That's why we still have this sin. That's why we cannot realize this fully. There will no longer be any curse. In fact, turn over there. This is such a good passage. Go to Revelation 22. Okay. Revelation 22. It's the last book in the Bible, so it should take you like really like three seconds, really. Like <laughs> getting concerned here. Some of you are like in the middle of the Bible, like <laughs> Are we there? Yes. Revelation twenty two, verse three. There will no longer be any what? Curse. It's Genesis three, right? There will no longer we look forward to this, right? There will no longer be any curse. Oh, everything that comes with the curse, the tears, the death, the sinfulness, all of those things, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, right? And his born servants, who are the born servants here? Us, right? We'll serve him, Right? They will see his face. Now, this is amazing because at this point, you have a new body, right? There's no longer any sin. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I love this. There will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun. There will be no sun, right? Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. God's people dwelling fully with him. Emmanuel. How marvelous is that? I don't know about you, but I look forward to that time. I look forward to that time. Right? We, we, as, we read, as we read the Christmas stories and everything, let's not relegate this to, oh, it's just a child for this time. And There's a whole lot of scriptures happening from the beginning to the end of time. This is just a glimpse of what we will realize fully. And he came so that we would have this through the gospel. And so when Paul understands this, and so when he writes in Philippians um, Chapter 1. <laughs> I would double check that. And it says, for me to live in Christ, help me, is that chapter 1? For me to live is Christ, right? And to die is what? Gain, right? And then he says, look, but he understands there's something far better than, than here. Living is Christ. For me to live is Christ, and that means fruitful labor here. And now, but I desire to be with Christ, for that is very much what? Better. Or desired, depending on your version, right? He understood this. Let's not get stuck at one point of like a baby. But this is a culmination of history. And this is something that will be fulfilled at a much greater level that we look forward to as Christians. Based upon what Christ has done on the cross for us. So, may we see God's promises through the ages. May we see God's faithfulness to those promises. May we see God's presence from the beginning. 
and how he has separated, how, we, how sin has separated us from him. But may we see God's love in how he continues to pursue, to pursue us. Not because we are worthy. In fact, we are rebellious, we are dead in our sins, we hate Christ from the moment of conception. We who spit on his face every day and refuse to live for his glory, but for our own. And yet, God is gracious. God is gracious. And he protects and fulfills his promises, fulfills the sign of Emmanuel. Christ builds his church, betrothes us as the church to himself. And then he gives us the pledge of the Holy Spirit during this time of purification to be with us. And then he will return for us to be with us forever. And we see at the end of the Bible the marriage that is there between Christ and the church. He is Emmanuel, God with us. What love, what mercy, what grace. God, or who is Jesus? Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus is our savior. And he is God with us. And so what ought to be our response to this child that we remember? What ought to be your response? Well, the last verse in our text today helps us with that. Look at verse 24. Then Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The response is obedience. It's obedience. Joseph and Mary obey. You read about Mary's response in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 38, where he says, And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you're a Christian today, or rather, if you're not a Christian today, when I speak of obedience, understand you cannot obey God apart from the gospel, apart from believing in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. As much as you try and say, I'm going to be a good father, I'm going to be a good husband, I'm going to be a good mother, I'm going to be a good son, a good daughter, I'm going to be a good, all of these things are just works that are as filthy rags before God apart from the gospel. The starting point is the gospel. The good news of you understanding that you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. That Jesus Christ came to die for you on the cross for your sin. The good news that we have been speaking of and we're happy to talk to you more about. And understand, this is not an option, okay? We live in a society, or rather you live in a society where there's so many options, where you go to Walmart and you can pick and choose what you like, this is not given by God as an option. The gospel is a command that your creator is giving to you and warning you that if you do not obey this command, this is what awaits you. Paul, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, while addressing the people at Athens and confronting them on their idolatry, on their idolatry, their opagas. He says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
This is a command from the Lord. And you will do well to heed it by repenting and believing in the gospel. But if you're a Christian this morning, look at Joseph. Look at Mary. Most likely 13 years of age for Mary. Joseph, probably not much older than that. But the level of obedience and submission they have to their Lord. This is what should characterize you in your whole life, every aspect of your life, because of the gospel. Paul encompasses, basically, if you want to look at it, all the commands that Christ gives you in one, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, when he says that, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because you know who Jesus Christ is. You know what he has done. So what does that mean, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ? Think about it. There's the faithfulness of God in the gospel. How faithful are you being to his word and his commands? Think about it. How do I walk worthy of the gospel of Christ? There's the love of Christ, of God in the gospel. How loving are you? How do I walk worthy of the gospel? The gospel encompasses forgiveness. How quick to forgive are you? The gospel encompasses kindness, the kindness of God upon us. How is that evident in your life, in your marriage, and in your children? The gospel encompasses the patience of God. How patient are you? The gospel encompasses the grace of God, the mercy of God. You could go on and on and on about the character of God that is shown in the gospel that should be evident in every aspect and relationship of your life. Are you walking worthy? Because you know who Jesus Christ is. Enjoy the gifts and wrap presents. I I don't know if I meant it to be this serious. I should say I meant it to be this serious. Okay, because some of you now look sad. You walked in like Christmas and you're living here like, oh, Christmas, you know. (laughs) But there's a reality to this. That's the reality. And we ought to think like Christians, especially at a time like this. Amen? Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for these, your people, and how they love you, and how they continue to grow in the knowledge of your son. And I do pray, Father, that you may help us during this time of Christmas to be mindful of who Jesus is, and to live our lives in a manner where...